How does God invade our world? When God invades our world, how does he do it? He shows up as a baby, a baby sleeping in a feeding trough. And he has a host of angelic beings who announce his coming by telling the world, God's not mad at you. That's reason enough to listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, I want to give you some good news, and here it is. God's not mad at you. Isn't that good news? That's what the angels in our passage today tell a group of smelly shepherds. God's not mad at you. Of course, he's got every right to be, right? God has every right to be angry with us. We are sinners. We are rebels. We love ourselves more than God. We love ourselves more than others. We love to be first. We love to make everything about us. And we have broken God's law. So we're guilty. So God has every right to be angry with us. But the Christmas story is all about how God came to deal with our sin. Our sin, which does make God angry. But God loved us so much that he sent a host of angels to declare that he's not mad at us. And the proof is that he also sent his son Jesus to be our savior. Maybe you're here today and you don't know what the Bible says. You really haven't read it. You don't know what it's about. But I want to tell you today that the Bible reveals that God's love for us is amazing and scandalous and inexhaustible and mysterious and irresistible and abundant. And costly and gratuitous and wondrous and extravagant and overflowing and free. That's what Christmas is all about. God's love for us and how he came to save us. Christmas is all about the fact that because of what Jesus has done, when you run to him, God's not mad at you anymore. In fact, he really loves you. He really loves you. He likes you too. And he proved it by sending his son, born in a manger in a redneck podunk town in the backwoods of Israel. Let's read about it. Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Please don't overlook this important note that Luke gives us about Joseph in verse 4. He was of the house and lineage of David. This is very important to the story that's about to unfold. Joseph was related to King David, the King David. He has royal blood flowing through him, and he was returning with the pregnant woman that he was betrothed to, Mary, to the royal city of David, Bethlehem. This is another significant part of the story. 
Why is this significant? Why should the fact that Joseph, a descendant of King David, was returning to Bethlehem, why should that stand out to us? Here's why. Because the Messiah was supposed to come from the line of David. And the prophet Micah said that the Messiah would come from the Podunk town of Bethlehem. So we have a descendant of David who shows up with his pregnant fiance in Bethlehem. So you're supposed to get what Luke is saying here. Something very big is about to happen. Here we have the God of the universe, the eternal Son of God, who left the glories of heaven by coming to earth. And he has to sleep, Luke tells us, in a manger. If you don't know the manger was actually a feeding trough. A manger is where they would feed their animals. And the fact that Jesus was laid in a feeding trough is very important to Luke because Luke mentions it three times. Verse 7, verse 12, and verse 16. Luke does this because he wants to go out of his way to stress the humility that surrounded Jesus' birth. He wants you to know the humility of this baby king. This king... The king of the universe, the king of kings, was not greeted with fanfare. There was no 24-carat gold crib to lay him, lay him in. He was just laid in a manger in a dirty feeding trough. No fancy crib from Target that all the hipster moms wanted. Joseph and Mary did not have those cool walkie-talkie baby monitors. They didn't have a lullabies playlist on Spotify. They have those, by the way. We use them. All they have is a dirty feeding trough in which they would lay their newborn son. So Jesus takes his first nap in a nasty feeding trough for donkeys and horses. And he's surrounded by the noises and smells of animals that he created. What humility. I mean, picture this. This newborn is surrounded by animals who just go wherever they want. You know what I mean when I say just go, right? Praise God for the hallowed manger ground. Really? Because they're just going wherever they want. Praise God for the hallowed manger ground. Now, I want all of you to put yourself in Mary's shoes. This is no sanitized hospital. There's no glass crib with wheels that the baby stays in for a few days next to mom's bed until the baby leaves the hospital. No nurses to wake the mom up when she finally starts taking a good nap. There's just sheep donkeys and run-of-the-mill farm animals very close to your newborn baby. Talk about building up your immune system. It wasn't because Mary was a first-time teenage mom who didn't know any better. It was all part of God's sovereign plan to highlight the humility of his son Jesus as he stepped into this messy, dirty, stinky, sin-filled world. Do you see it? God comes down to messy, dirty, broken, damaged, dysfunctional sinners like us. Jesus is comfortable in our mess. That's how grace works. Jesus humbly takes on human flesh and gets to nap in the feeding trough of dirty animals. But why in the world would Mary and Joseph be in this dirty, filthy environment? Well, Luke tells us in verse 7, because there was no place for them in the inn. Well, what's the inn that Luke speaks of here? When Luke says in verse 7 that there was no place for them in the inn, we should not think of a Motel 6 or the Holiday Inn. Scholars affirm that Bethlehem wasn't big enough for a nice, fancy hotel. Bethlehem didn't even have a Starbucks, okay? This place was, this was a podunk town. No larger than a postage stamp. 
It was as redneck and backwoods as you could get. And so Mary and Joseph show up to this redneck town, to one of their relatives' houses. This was Joseph's hometown where he was raised. He needs a place to stay because Luke tells us now he's living up far north in Nazareth. So he needs a place to stay. But homes weren't very big back then. In fact, they were very small. So Joseph and Mary show up, but the house is crowded. Now, perhaps all of Joseph's relatives have come back and descended upon Bethlehem because they all have to register per Caesar's order. So Joseph and Mary most likely slept in the living room or the attached room that housed all the animals. It was very normal in the ancient Near East. Animals would be kept indoors during cold nights. So this is where Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus get to sleep. The Greek word that Luke uses here for inn, there was no place for them in the inn, he also uses later in chapter 22, verse 11, when he speaks of the upper room where Jesus ate the Last Supper with his disciples. So the inn that Luke speaks of would have been the upstairs bedroom in the house where people slept. And there was no room up in that loft area for Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus to sleep. It was too crowded, so they had to sleep downstairs with the animals. So it's not like some hotel owner kicked them out because he had no rooms to offer them. That's a Western idea that we have imported into the text Some mean-spirited innkeeper did not kick out Joseph and Mary. That's the tradition that many of us have been taught, that some innkeeper refused to give them a room. And so we picture this old curmudgeon at the hotel check-in desk, and he harshly tells this new teenage mom, Get out of here! I said I ain't got no rooms available. I ain't got no rooms. See that blinking sign outside? It says no vacancy. What part of no vacancy do you not understand? Now you crazy kids, get out of here. That's not what happened. There was no room in the upper loft to sleep, so they had to sleep downstairs with the animals. But here's what I want to know. Why did Joseph's relatives not let this new mom, this new mom and her, new, new, her newborn sleep upstairs? I mean, come on. She just gave birth, most likely in this very house, and you ain't going to give up your spot upstairs to the teenage girl who just gave birth to her first baby? They brought their animals in at night because it got cold, But making a new mom and her baby sleep downstairs on the ground with the animals, man, that's cold. You've got to have a cold heart to do that. And perhaps this is a glimpse into the spiritual state of those in Israel at the time. I think one of the reasons why Mary and Joseph were not allowed to sleep upstairs is because of her pregnancy. She's not married to Joseph yet. She's just betrothed, which was kind of in between engagement and marriage. And she's pregnant. And she's been telling everyone that her and Joseph have not been intimate and that she got pregnant by God. Uh Uh-huh. Sure, Mary. Sure, you and Joe haven't been intimate. You got pregnant by God? Uh Uh-huh. If we buy that, will you throw in some oceanfront property in Arizona? There's skepticism, there's ridicule, there's shame. You can almost hear them whispering, I don't want them in our house. She's pregnant and they ain't even married yet. What will the neighbors think? What are they saying about us at the market? They can stay, 
but they ain't staying up in the loft. They will not sleep in our beds. They can stay downstairs with the animals. So Mary and Joseph had to endure snide comments, people questioning their morals, and a lot of distrust. And they had to trust God's word. They couldn't figure out why no one would give up a a bed for a new mom and her baby. They had to live with ridicule and scorn and shame. They didn't fully understand, but they were patient. They had to wait in order to be vindicated. They had to wait 33 years in order to be vindicated when their son came back from the dead. If that isn't vindication, I don't know what is. Listen, you'll have to do the same thing sometimes. You'll have to wait. You'll have to be patient when God is doing things that you do not understand. Think about Joseph. In Matthew's gospel, Mary told him all that was happening in her life, how she is pregnant, pregnant by God, with God. And then Joseph saw an angel in a dream. So put yourself in his shoes. I'm pregnant, honey. But wait, not not by a man, by God. And actually, this is no ordinary baby. It's God himself. It's the Messiah. So Joseph's world was turned upside down too, and he had to wait, and he had to trust God. So be patient when things happen that you can't explain. When you wonder where God is in your life, when you wonder what he's doing and why he is allowing what he is allowing, and when you can't explain what is happening and when it gets weird and when it gets strange. Tim Keller said, God's delays don't make things worse. They always make things better. God's delays don't make things worse. They always make things better. And perhaps someone here today needs to hear that. If God is delaying something in your life, it isn't to make things worse. It is always to make things better, to bring good to you because he loves you. And so Mary and Joseph end up having to spend the very first Christmas with the cranks. These people wouldn't even give up one of their beds for a new mom and her baby. But the good news of the gospel is that Christmas is even for cranks and for curmudgeons. Jesus spent his first night, his very first sleepover, with a bunch of cranks with a bunch of curmudgeons, with a bunch of Scrooges, and a bunch of Eeyores, both literal and figurative Eeyores. And he did it because he loves them. Jesus loves people who hate Christmas. Jesus even came to be the savior of people who don't like Christmas. Jesus even came to save people who don't like it when they hear Christmas music before Thanksgiving. Let me say that again. Jesus even came to save people who don't like it when they hear Christmas music before Thanksgiving. And you know who you are. And Jesus loves even you. I started listening to Christmas music on November 1st this year. So take that, all you bah humbuggers. Jesus came to save you too. Jesus even loves all of you bah humbuggers who won't play Christmas music before Thanksgiving. So in Luke 2-7, we're told that there's no room in the upper room for Jesus, no room in in the guest room, maybe if it was a two-bedroom loft. But later on in Luke's gospel, 
Jesus will finally get the room booked. And when he does, he will explain to his disciples in the guest room, in the upper room, why he came, which was to die for sinners. There's no room, no space for Jesus to sleep in the upper room at his birth, but there will be as he gets closer to the cross. At the end of his life, Jesus books the guest room, the upper room, to tell his disciples that he was going to die for them. More proof that God's not mad at you. And that's exactly what the angels will tell a bunch of smelly shepherds. Look at verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So after the events of Jesus' birth unfold, our scene switches now to the open fields near Bethlehem. And to whom does this angel appear? Shepherds. Dirty, smelly, stinky shepherds. Major B.O. These guys reek. They're humming. Scholars suggest that shepherds were at the very bottom of the social ladder. This was another reminder that Jesus was born to be king of all and not the upper echelons of society. The king of all peoples, not just Jewish people, not just the nation of Israel. Christmas is for everyone. Christmas is not for people who have it all together. It's for sinners like you and me. It's for a mom who snaps at her children because they interrupt her sleep. It's for people who are cranky with their spouses when they try to offer them advice. It's for the man who yells at the driver who cuts him off. It's for people who are greedy, people who are selfish, people who even hate Jesus. Christmas is for the broken and the weary. Christmas is for sinners, for all of us. And so you may not have it all together this Christmas. Your family might be a mess. You might be a mess. And that's exactly why that baby is in the manger in the first place, to set us free from our sin and give us hope beyond our circumstances. Christmas is for sinners, and that's good news for all of us. And as these shepherds were watching over their flocks at night, suddenly an angel appears, and the glory of the Lord surrounds them. What is the glory of the Lord? Peter Mead says, The glory of the Lord is his mercy, grace, slow to anger, his loyalty and forgiveness, and abundant steadfast love and faithfulness. Here in Luke, the glory of the Lord is the weightiness. And that's what the Hebrew word kavod means. It's it's heavy. Like, you know, in the 60s and 70s, it's like, that's heavy, man. The glory of the Lord is this weightiness of what? God loves sinners? That's heavy, man. The glory of the Lord is the weightiness of the truth that he is merciful and kind to sinners and rebels 
And his glory is seen most clearly when he loves and forgives sinners and rebels. And so an angel appears and the shepherds are filled with great fear. And they're trying to figure all of this out. But why would they be afraid? Here's my guess, and it's something that I discovered at 3 a.m. in the morning this past week. I woke up like I typically do every night, could not go back to sleep, so I opened my Bible app on my iPhone and began listening to the Old Testament book of Amos, the prophet Amos. And here's what I saw, and let me read it to you. Amos chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. God called Amos, who was just a lowly, stinky, smelly shepherd with B.O. He called him to prophesy to the nations of Israel, Judea, and the nations of the world, the nation of Judah. And God did this because God loves using obscure misfits. I love that about God. God loves using obscure misfits. But that's not what I discovered at 3 a.m. because I already know that because God uses me. The prophecies of Amos are messages of rebuke and judgment on the nations and also on Israel and Judah. Yes, there's grace in the message of Amos because he sprinkles it through there. But it's mostly a message of judgment. And Amos tells us that the Lord roars as a lion and the shepherds in the pasture of Israel begin to mourn. They hear God's word and they weep. But in Luke chapter 2, when God appears through the angels, the shepherds don't mourn. The shepherds rejoice at good news. In Amos, we have the law, God's holy law, and it roars. And we tremble because we don't meet the standard of holiness in God's law that's needed to stand in God's presence. But then in Luke, here comes the good news trumpeted by angels, peace, God is not mad at you. But it gets even more exciting. Amos was a shepherd in Tekoa when the Lord roared, when the Lord appeared to him. Here's what's so fascinating. Bethlehem was about four miles from Tekoa where Amos was. So it's very possible, but that the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 were in, who Luke tells us were in the region around Bethlehem, it's very possible that they were in the exact spot as Amos was. And so any good Israelite would have put two and two together. Shepherds in the area around Tekoa heard from the Lord, something is up, y'all. Something big is about to happen. Luke says they were in that very region. They were close to Bethlehem and very well could have been in and around Tekoa, which was just a few miles away. The last time God showed up in Tekoa and spoke to a shepherd, he turned him into a prophet and gave him a message predominantly of judgment against Israel and Judah. This was about 760 B.C. And now God shows up again. No wonder the shepherds fear. 
They expect to hear a message of judgment. That's what happened to the shepherd of Amos in his, the shepherd Amos in his day. But instead, in Luke 2, they hear a message of peace and joy. God appears to shepherds near Tekoa, but they don't hear words of judgment. They hear good news. Look at verse 10 again. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So the angel tells them about the birth of Jesus and where they can find him. The angel tells the shepherds to hightail it to Bethlehem and they will see the sign. A baby will be wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a feeding trough. The sign. A baby in a feeding trough. What? Remember what we've stressed throughout this series. God does surprising things. God does crazy things. The sign that God was not mad at them was this. A baby wrapped up very tight and asleep in a manger surrounded by smelly animals. Huh? That's a weird sign, right? I told you God does crazy things. Imagine the shepherds who were looked down upon in society showing up and knocking on doors in the middle of the night. Uh, uh, excuse me, we just saw an angel and he spoke to us out there in the fields. Actually, there were thousands of angels. Anyways, while we were watching our sheep, actually some of us were doing the proverbial counting sheep thing, we were sleeping, and then thousands of angels appeared singing and they told us that God is not mad at us and the proof of this is that we would find a newborn taking a nap in a dirty feeding trough. I know this sounds weird, Is there by chance a baby in this house asleep in a nasty feeding trough? The shepherds had to go look for the baby. But remember, Bethlehem was small. So it wouldn't take too long to figure out where the unmarried teenage kids who just had a baby who they claimed to be God was staying at. You'd find that house pretty quick. And they did. The shepherds were announcing that the good shepherd was here. They didn't use that phrase, the good shepherd, but that's who Jesus is. The shepherds knew their Old Testament. They knew the last time that God appeared to shepherds in Tekoa. They knew all the passages that spoke of the people of God as sheep. And they knew that the Old Testament was one big story of how the Lord, how Yahweh is the good shepherd. Alec Motier said, The Old Testament is the place where we learn about the good shepherd looking after his sheep. 
God is in love with us. His heart goes pitter-patter when he sees us. That's so plain in the Old Testament. Likewise, the wrath and holiness of God are equally plain in the New Testament. And you have to have both with the God of the Bible. Yes, his wrath and holiness at our sin is clear. And so is his love. And to remedy and to satisfy his wrath and holiness in love, he sent Jesus to live and die in our place. That's what Christmas is about. The baby asleep in that manger is all about God doing something about your sin and about my sin. It's about him sending his son to take our place on the cross, to take our guilt and shame away. It's about the good shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. And so the angels come to announce good news, the gospel, that God's not angry with us, even though he has every right to be. God is not angry with us, even though he has every right to be. No need to fear God if we accept his gift, the baby in the manger. No need to work at earning God's love. God came to rescue us, not by giving us a list of things to do, but by giving us his son. And the good news, it's free. It's free. Who doesn't like free? Free if we simply open the empty hands of faith. God came down not as a judge to punish us, but as a rescuer to save us. That's the good news that the angels are declaring. And I hope you believe them today. But let me clear up another misconception here. Sometimes you hear verse 14 translated this way, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Unfortunately, we think this means that during Christmas time we're to share and buy presents and give, etc., In general, practice goodwill to everyone and get the warm fuzzies for doing so. And there's nothing wrong with that. Do it. Please do all of those things because this is the most wonderful time of the year, which is why Christmas music should start on November 1st. But that's not what this verse here means. It means, as the ESV translation captures it, on earth, peace among those with whom God is pleased. Peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. It means God's good pleasure with mankind. God's pleasure with men, sinful men. Peace with whom God is pleased. But who can get in God's good graces? Who can have peace with a holy God? Who can please God? How can dirty, messy, rebellious, sinful human beings ever be made right with an infinitely glorious and holy God? How is that possible? Because we're so messed up and he's so holy. Well, we can't please God by doing anything. We can't earn it. Alec Motier also said, There is nothing that comes closer to ultimate blasphemy than to work for your salvation. To say, but there must be something that I must do. Because that is to to deny that Jesus is the Savior whom God sent. So just banish it from your mind. God sent us a Savior, not to half save us, not to pay a deposit so that we might do the rest, but actually to save us from our sins eternally. To go to a cross and cry out, it is finished. 
nothing more to be done. We receive the grace of God for our eternal salvation. Peace with God is only possible because of and through faith in that baby taking a nap in that dirty manger. It's only through the life and death of Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we all should have lived in perfect obedience to God's law, a life of never sinning. Can you imagine that? And he died the death that we all deserve. He took the curse of the law upon himself on the cross. He died in our place. He died for our rebellion, our sins. And when we repent and we turn from sin and we trust in his life and death and resurrection, then the good news of the gospel becomes true of us God is no longer mad at us. And this can become a reality for anyone here. If you repent, if you fess up, if you admit your sinfulness, and then trust in Jesus alone to save you. Then and only then will God no longer be angry at your sin. So there are only two options for all of this this morning. Number one, God is angry at you forever because of your rebellion and sin. And he has every right to be, right? That's the bad news. Or two, God pours out all of his anger on Jesus' son on the cross for your sins and mine. And then God is no longer mad at you. That's the good news. And that's... Why the angels are singing glory to God in Luke chapter 2. Because God did something to remedy our messed up condition. The angels are singing about the glorious, gracious God who stepped into this sinful world to save sinners. The angels are revealing that God's love for us is amazing and scandalous and inexhaustible and mysterious and irresistible and abundant and costly and gratuitous and wondrous and extravagant and overflowing and yes free the angels are giving glory to god because he is so merciful so gracious so tender so caring and so kind he's the good shepherd the angels are telling you that god is no longer mad at you if you turn to the baby in the manger Tim Keller says, God's anger is different from ours. We are quick to anger. We make people pay who have wronged us. And then, nonetheless, we nurse our grievances. God is slow to anger, provides for our forgiveness, and then remembers our sins no more. Only the cross would reveal what it costs God to punish sin without punishing us. The bad news is that we are far worse than we could ever think. And the good news is that God is far better and more loving than we could ever hope or ever imagine. And the birth of Jesus Christ backs all of that up. Will you accept his gift today? If you do, God won't be mad at you anymore. If you do, God will be pleased with you forever, all because of what Jesus has done. That's good news. God invaded this world as a baby, as a savior, not as a powerful king, not as a tyrant, not as a ruler. He came as a baby in a trough. Not what we would expect. God invaded this world as a baby. So if you find yourself to be a Grinch this year, or a crank, or a curmudgeon, an Eeyore, or maybe you're a Scrooge, 
and you're upset by all the greed and the shopping and the selfishness or your family that's messed up or that weird uncle that always drinks too much and makes a scene or maybe the pain and sorrow of missing a loved one, whatever it is that brings pain or sadness or anger this year, let it nudge your heart to thank God for Christmas. Jesus did not come to give us a holiday. He didn't come to give us a few days off of work. He came to give us the true life that we long since lost. He came so that we would be free, so that we could rest in his finished work. The problem is that the hustle and bustle of the Christmas season is really just a picture of how all of us are with God. We're still trying to do stuff. We're still trying to get stuff done instead of resting in what Jesus has done for us. That means that Christmas is not about what must we do, but who can we trust? It's not about checking things off the list. It's about resting in Jesus. It's not about what must we do, but who can we trust? And the answer is Jesus. You do understand that if Christianity was all about do this or don't do this, then the world would not hate us. The world does not hate a Jesus that gives them a list of things to do. Why? Because the world is used to doing things and checking off lists. What offends the world is when you tell them that there is nothing that they can do to curry God's favor. And when you tell them that Jesus is the perfect one who came to save rebellious sinners, that makes people angry. When you tell them that they are really, really bad and that Jesus is the only good one and that only his goodness, his perfect life can make them right with God, that will make them angry. People don't want a savior. They want a list that they can check off. Even in the church. Even as Christians, we still have this default tendency to think that we need to do something to sort ourselves out to clean up the mess that we have made. And so what Christmas does is it challenges our what must we do assumption. What must I do? I have to do something to fix the mess. Think about the shepherds who came to worship the baby Jesus. They didn't come to worship a to-do list. The wise men that brought all those gifts fit for a king, they did not lay their gifts before a set of instructions. And King Herod did not feel threatened by a list of do's and don'ts. Right? Why? Because Christmas is about a person. Christmas is about God's son coming down to rescue us. It's about how God saves sinners based on what Jesus has done. And nothing weird happens when people become Christians, if you're wondering that. No angels, no sci-fi stuff. Just sinful human beings opening the empty hands of faith. That's it. Just people that they're admitting, admitting that they're sinners and they turn to Jesus, the Savior, and they say, I'm sorry for trying to take your throne away and be king of my world. Forgive me. I trust in you. I can't save myself. I need you. That's it. Nothing strange or weird. No sci-fi. Well, the one strange thing involved is that you have to admit that you're wrong, that you are a sinner, and people don't like to do that. So I guess that's kind of weird. But... It's as simple as just saying to Jesus, help. The only way to have peace with God is through Jesus, the baby born on Christmas. Yes, it seems strange. Sinners, rebellious sinners, reconciled with a holy God. But it's true. All of it. Will you believe today? If you do, then my Christmas present to you today is to echo the words of the angels. God's not God wants us close to him. 
Whenever we wander away from him, he says to us, come back to me because I am gentle and kind. I am slow to become angry with you, but very quick to forgive you. So come back home to me and be sorry inside your heart. I'm waiting to forgive you. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, just come. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are so merciful and kind. We believe. Help our unbelief. For those today who are here who feel like they're just not good enough, may the birth narrative of your son prove to them that Jesus is comfortable in our mess. We just got to come to him. Pray that you would turn our hearts toward him this Christmas Eve and that we would worship and be full of joy. In Jesus' name, amen.